can stand on nothing else but the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Our anchor of our life holds to Jesus Christ. It holds behind the veil. And Lord God, we, we stand upon Him and Him alone. Lord God, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy unto us that saw fit in sending us Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. And Lord God, we commit our lives to You in the whole, not in part, but in whole to You. The entirety of our lives, may it be poured out as an offering unto you before you that you may use us as you see fit in all of life. And it may be to your glory and to your honor alone. In the name of Christ we do pray. Amen. Today we are talking about learning to pray from this familiar model prayer that we see here in Luke's uh, version of it. We know it oftentimes from Matthew as well, this model prayer. And we think about prayer, the power of prayer, and really just kind of, it needs no convincing, but yet it needs a reminder. We need to be reminded of the power of prayer. And a great theologian, A.B. Simpson, tells a story, uh, a legend of a, of a great bell in the East. In fact, it was to, to be the greatest bell in all of the East, but because of war, the building in which housed it, the temple was destroyed, and the bell was found at the bottom of a nearby river. Many attempts were made to raise this bell from the river, uh, with, uh, to no avail, and then uh, when they thought they were at the point of, of failure, there was a monk that came from another temple and said, let me try, may I have a try at raising the bell? Probably, uh, I'd imagine the, the city officials, the town officials scoffed a bit, but he said, let me have an attempt at it, and if I do, then uh, the only thing I ask is that we allow the, the bell to be housed in my temple. So he uh, enlists some of his uh, other monks and his servants and he brings them and, and they collect an innumerable amount of bamboo rods. Thousands upon thousands of bamboo rods which they very carefully affix over time. Slowly over time they affix to the bell. And the, the, the shared buoyancy of these bamboo reeds raise this bell from the river. And then it resides then in his temple. You know A.B. Simpson of course the great uh, Christian theologian that tells of this legend. Uses this to illustrate this very point. Listen to his words here. Every whisper of believing prayer. It's like one of those little bamboo rods. For a time they seem to be in vain. Haven't we been there at times in our life where we, where we know the power of prayer, but we pray into the Lord, we don't feel like we have an answer. Or we feel like, what's it, what is it accomplishing? For a time they seem to be in vain, but there comes a last breath of believing supplication. And lo, the walls of Jericho fall, the mountain becomes a plain, and the host of Amalek is defeated. You know, he draws from those great Old Testament pictures of the power of prayer when God calls upon his people. And sometimes the people just innately, intuitively cry out to God in their moment of desperation. And God answers and answers their prayer. Lord God, as we come to you this morning and we're reminded of prayer in our lives, oftentimes we can neglect prayer, but you tell us that the prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much Lord, we pray that we would be reminded daily of that. And Lord, as we come to you, we know that you answer prayer. May we be patient, not uh, desiring it to be on our timetable alone, but we trust in you. May we have faith, may we trust in you that as we come and we ask you to intervene, that we trust that you do so. And God, may we lift up prayer not only for your glory, but also for others. In the name of Christ we do pray, amen. 
When you think of that verse there in James, James chapter 5, where it says the prayer of the righteous man avails or accomplishes much. We know that prayer, it's our, that, that verse rather, it's a very famous verse and it tells us, it reminds us from the very words of God to the Holy Spirit written in the book of James by the hands of James. It's a promise of God that he tells us the prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. And we know that the righteous person is the one who has been saved by Jesus Christ, who has come to that place in their life where they have given their life over, they've turned their life over to Jesus Christ. And as we see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God tells us that we're righteous. We're righteous, we're made perfect and pure and holy. And, and then God further says, because of our relationship with God in Christ, we're adopted into the family of God. As I mentioned many times in Hebrews chapter 4, he tells us we can boldly come before his throne not cowering in some sort of uh, intrepid fear, but we can come to the Lord with boldness. And he tells us that when we come, the prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. Now we think about that. How does this all work out when we know that we follow the infinite God, the almighty God, the all-knowing God, the God who sees past, present, and future is just one unending present. Just He just sees it. He knows what will happen. How in the world does our prayer have effect? You know, all the great mysteries of, of prayer and the great mysteries of God's economy, some of those things we won't fully understand this side of heaven. But what we do know is that we can stand on the bedrock fact that God says, your prayer accomplishes much. In his economy, in his world, in his, uh, in his sovereignty, his sovereign hand upon the world, he calls us and he tells us to pray. Because it accomplishes much. And so we see here, we come to this passage in Luke where Jesus' inner disciples, his inner 12, are asking him, God, tell us how to pray. Jesus, teach us how to pray. And as another theologian has said, really all prayers that we have, all uh, prayers that we share, prayers that have been shared throughout time and eternity are really an application and an amplification of this model prayer. It was kind of funny, my assistant Tony, most of you know her, we were talking about this this week and that we both came from different, uh, different denominational backgrounds, one she grew up in, one I went to a preschool at a different uh, denominational church and it was part of their history to actually memorize this prayer, rote memorization. And so I can in the King James Version, the Matthew Version, sometimes I get stumbled a little bit, but I can still, I mean I can still recite it, I can still recite it, just, just like rattle it off. And we were talking about this, and I think there was some, some good in that, that we just we're memorizing scripture, number one. It's a reminder of this prayer. It's always with me. But really more so than a prayer that we are to memorize and we are to recite by rote, it's something that is a model to us. Jesus gives a model. In fact, we see it here in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now it came to pass, as Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples. See, it wasn't uncommon, and probably what they were asking for was a rote prayer. It was a pretty commonplace in those days for rabbis, great teachers, and they would have a following. There's disciples, there's students that would follow them around. It wasn't uncommon in that day for the rabbi to actually write out a prayer for his followers to say verbatim. And of course, we know that even in that, if our hearts are engaged in it, even if it's something that's verbatim written out and we pray it with our hearts engaged, we know that that is an honest and valid prayer. But Jesus almost says, if you read between the lines, I'll do you one better. I'll do more than write you a prayer. But he says, when you pray, say this, say this, 
our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our sins as we forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He says, when you pray, pray in this way. This is how you should pray. And so we draw kind of three things that we see from what Jesus told them to pray. First of all, we start, when we pray, we start with the correct perspective. What is that perspective? The perspective that we start with is the fact that we are coming before God, the almighty God of the universe. The wonderful thing is I just mentioned before and I've mentioned many times before because I think it's one of my favorite verses that explain the relationship of the believer to the almighty limitless God, the creator of heavens and earth, is that he tells us because we have come to know Christ as our savior, those of us who have, our nature's been changed, we've been made righteous, we've been adopted into the family of God and we've been forgiven and one of the many benefits... One of the many perks, if you will, of that is that we can come boldly before the throne of the almighty God of heaven and earth. He tells us that. We don't have to cower in fear. We don't have to be uh, like a subject of one of the ancient Near East monarchs and that they could, with a snap of their fingers, if they didn't like what you said, they didn't like your look, they didn't like your appearance, whatever it may be, on a whim, they could snap their fingers and you would be dead. But God tells us that we can come boldly before him because we have been adopted into his family. We have all the rights and privileges of a natural born son. And so he says, our father, our father who art in heaven. Intimacy, intimacy. It speaks of this intimacy, not a cold detachment. That word Abba there was an Aramaic word which was kind of a common trade language of the day along with the natural language of the Hebrews. Aramaic was a common trade language and that word Abba spoke of this intimacy, this intimate relationship with the Father. And it was such a special word in the early New Testament church that even the Gentile believers, although Aramaic was not natural to their tongue, they adopted the word Abba, much as we do. You know, even in some of our church settings, we've used that word. I've heard many people, when they've prayed before, have said, Abba, Father, very appropriately. And it speaks of this intimacy. Now, some of you say immediately, whenever we talk about the intimacy and the love of a father, immediately, some of your minds will go to the fact that my father was not intimate. He was not present. You think of a cold detachment if he was present at all. And so anytime we talk about the love of the Father, whether it be in the context of Scripture or, or excuse me, of prayer in Scripture that we see, or maybe it's the context of just the love of God, how we say that God is loving like a Father, immediately there's this just kind of, this just wall. Because you don't know it, you don't experience it. You haven't experienced it in life. But let me tell you, even if you had a situation, a background, a childhood in which there was a cold detachment, or maybe your father wasn't even there, you know that there's something not right about it. You know the perspective. You said that this isn't right. There's got to be better than this. There's got to be more than this. So how in the world do you bridge that gap? You take that thought. You take that knowledge of the fact that this isn't right. This wasn't right. This cold detachment, this absenteeism of my father isn't right. You take that. You take the opposite of it. And as kids often say, you take it infinity times infinity. 
Aren't kids uh, fond of that? Whenever they learn what the word infinity means and they learn what multiplication is about, they say infinity times infinity. And it's just like a trump card to quash whatever sort of argument or conversation they're having. If we have no idea of a loving father, or maybe we even know of a loving father, but he wasn't as loving as he should have been, he wasn't as kind as he should have been, you know what it is. You know that there's something wrong there. There's something out of place. You know what it should be almost intuitively. You take that infinity times infinity and that is what you see from the great God of heaven he's not a distant deity that just created the earth and let it spin and let it go and said good luck but he says to us I sent my one and only son to this earth to save you from the greatest problem that all of you share and it is the problem of sin which separates you from me Not only do I save you, not only do I give you mercy, but I do one better and I give you grace and love. I do one better than that and I adopt you into my family. Our Father, our Father who is in heaven, the place where we long to dwell. When we think about heaven, there's great superlatives that we see in scripture about streets of gold and rivers flowing with milk and honey. And I think all of that is things that we'll see, but there is an element there of almost God giving us hyperbole to describe to us in human terms, finite terms, something that is absolutely infinite and glorious. And even though we will see those very things, there's simply a little piece that describes to us what is going to be far greater than any of that is the very unfiltered presence of God. We know him not in part, but the whole. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It speaks not only of that intimacy, but it speaks of that same sort of efficacy and power that we have with royalty. So not only do we get the benefits of the intimacy of a father, a wonderful, loving, godly father, but we see this sort of power and efficacy to accomplish what he will in our lives that we would only get from royalty. Hallowed be your name. Its name is a representation of his character and his attributes. Think about some of you or some that you know that have a personal business. Maybe you've started a business and maybe you chose not to say, you know, name it uh, Integrity Auto or maybe you chose not to to name it AAA this or that, but you actually decided, you made the conscious decision to put your name upon the business. Now, you know That your name, that business represents your honor. You know that if you or your employees aren't accomplishing things as you would want them to be accomplished, that it reflects upon you and your honor and your name. And God says, hallowed be, and and he calls us under the writer of, of Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to pray in the very name of God. He says, hallowed be your name. The name of God represents his power and his glory and in the very quality of his attributes, his goodness, his judgment, his righteousness, and his love. You know, we think about the history of the world. We think about almost the opposite. Some names throughout the annals of history just evoke almost a visceral response. You know, Idi Amin, that great, uh, terrible dictator that we see in Uganda that killed Hundreds of thousands of people. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, millions of people. The great Holocaust at his hands. Osama bin Laden. We think about these names throughout history that just evoke these sort of visceral responses. 
But in as opposite as opposite could be, we see that the name of God, Yahweh, reflects his glory. His great name that he gave Moses at the burning bush. He says, Yahweh, the I am that I am, the one who just is, the one who exists. And we see these great names of God as he expressed himself in many ways unto us. El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the God the Most High. Adonai, Lord, Master. Yahweh, the Lord, again, the one who is. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, my banner. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord, my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. El Elom, the everlasting God. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And one that I've liked so much in this context of coming to the Lord in prayer. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. It's there. The God that we follow is the great, almighty, all-powerful God of the universe who could speak the word and all that we see would cease to exist, but yet he tells us he's there. We can come to him boldly. So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we think about Rome in its days in which it had conquered many of the lands of the day. They would often go in and allow rulership of the land in which they conquered it was almost a vassal government a government in which they set up of the rulers of that particular place that particular country and, even, and as long as they didn't step out of line rule or rome would let them have some sort of rulership over their own people and we wonder why in this world in which god again could just snap his fingers and it would cease to exist why does he allow any sort of rulership under, uh, other than his own? We see even that uh, Satan is named the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. Why does God allow this to happen? Other than we, other than we, we know that ultimately we'll receive more glory and honor from it. Some of these questions, again, we won't know this side of heaven. Outside of the fact that he, through it, is honored and glorified. But one day, one day, his rule and his reign will be concretely realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we pray not only for that moment, God, your will be done, your kingdom come. But as we know that the kingdom of God even now is proliferated through the hearts and minds of believers as we come to know Christ and we bear witness to him, the kingdom of God is spread. We bring the kingdom to this world. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It reminds me again, as we talked about several sermons ago of of Plato and Aristotle and, and many others have had forms of government and in different terms and different terminologies many of them will say one of the greatest imagined forms of government that could possibly be they will kind of give a quick caveat there and that it's a and, and that it's a impossibility because of man we know because of the sinfulness of man they'll say the most perfect form of government would be a benevolent monarch to use one terminology or the other we use it in different ways, different writers. And what that means is that the monarch can get done exactly what they want to have done. Exactly what they want to have done. If they want to do it, it's done. There's no deliberation. There's no back and forth. There's no time. However, when it comes to a, an earthly monarch, a human monarch, there's sin that's often mixed into the equation. And so what can be done with great expediency might not always be just and right. In fact, it might be very horrible and lead to some great atrocities but if you could imagine a benevolent monarch 
one in which would always do the right thing, 100% of the time would do what is right and just for his people, would be a servant unto his people. He could get the right thing done, and it could be done immediately. The great thing about it is we do serve a benevolent monarch, and that is God. We have to rely upon him. We have to give our lives over to him. We have to buck human nature that says, I want to rebel. I want to do my own thing. And we have to come to the place where we realize, God, hallowed be your name. I submit myself to you because you are, in fact, that very benevolent monarch. You always do what's right. And I yield myself unto you. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So again, what is our correct perspective? When we come to the Lord in prayer, the correct perspective is to come with an attitude of worship and gratitude. You know, I've said before, one of the greatest, I think, exercises that you can partake of in, in prayer is to simply spend a concerted time of prayer. Maybe your time of prayer is in the morning, you study your Bible and you spend some time uh, praying to the Lord. Take one of those times and spend the entire time just thanking God for what he's done. Take that time to glorify him for who he is, to worship him. God, you are great, and you are mighty, and you are wonderful, yet you saw fit to love me. And to spend that time thanking him for what he's done in your life. God, I thank you. I thank you for even the, the simplest blessings of life. I thank you for those things that are so easy for me to, to neglect and just pass right over and just think they're part of life. Thank him for those things. So not only do we start with a correct perspective, but we also pray for the basic necessities of life our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread now for us in america most of us we are not struggling daily for our provision we're not struggling daily for our food but right now as we sit here there are billions of people millions of people at the very least that are struggling for very, the very simple sustenance of life. And it reminds us that even though we don't struggle with that sort of level of basic necessity of life, that God is still the one who provides those things for us. You know, it's a reminder throughout Scripture we see manna in the wilderness. When God, there was a great spiritual truth behind it as well, as, as, as we will see here. But there's a, it, the, the, the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, and God said, don't... Uh, don't lose heart. I am going to bring you sustenance. I'm going to bring you provision. I'm going to bring you manna. And he had manna, miraculously, this bread-like substance fall upon the ground. He says, don't gather more than you need for today. Don't gather more than you need for today because I will bring you more tomorrow. We know that the children disobeyed and wanted to do it rotted, of course. God was showing them, not only can I provide for you, but trust me daily to provide for you. Every ounce of your life, every bit of your life, every minute of your life, trust me to provide for you. So much of our, so much of our, our, our uh, attention is put upon the mundane things of life. We spend so much of our day with our focus of our attention and our zeal upon things that don't have ultimate uh, value, don't have ultimate glory. They're important, but they don't, they're not storing up treasure in heaven. And God says, with those things, trust me with those things. You know, we often think about some geniuses that are zealous about what they're, they're working upon, what they're trying to invent, what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish. And if you read some of these biographies, a lot of times what you'll see is, is erratic eating patterns. 
because they're so zealously focused upon what they're trying to accomplish that oftentimes they can even forget to eat correctly. They can be so nervous focused on whatever it may be. But in a similar way, not exactly the same, but in a similar way, when we are zealous for what God has called us to accomplish, which is the proliferation of his kingdom, taking the good news, the great message of the love of God into the world, we must trust him for the basic necessities of life. Trusting him as we zealously pursue what he's called us to. We say, God, I'm going to trust you to take care of my job. I'm going to trust you that I don't have to go to work focused upon how I'm going to kind of scheme and manipulate and try to figure out how to cut this corner. I'm not going to figure out how to kind of get my way into this meeting and I'm going to kind of try to put myself in front of this guy and try to perform so I can kind of climb this ladder and then all the time losing focus on the great mission of why God has called you to any place, whether it be a job or whether it be a social group or whether it be a school, which is to be the light of the gospel unto these people. God, I'm going to be the light of the gospel in my workplace, and I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to trust you to help me. And I'm going to spend my energy, and I'm going to spend my zeal on helping people come to know Christ. Basic necessities of life. So not only do we see the correct perspective, the basic necessities of life which we pray for, but we also pray for whatever separates us from God. We know ultimately those of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ will never be completely separated. We'll never be separate in our relationship. That for all time and eternity is bedrock and it's been settled. We see in John chapter 10, Romans chapter 8, many other places we see that if God has saved us, he has secured us. However, that relationship can be strained. And so we can pray, God, whatever it may be that separates us, we must pray. And he says here in verse 4, forgive us of our sins. Matthew uses debts, and because he was speaking to a Jewish audience, he uses debts in the first word. And I think Luke probably uses sins because it was more prominent and more easily recognized by the Gentile audience. But still we see even the follow-up here in the second part of this phrase, as we forgive all of those indebted to us. Either way, it reminds us of the fact that we had a great indebtedness because of our sin. The sin separated us from God and we had an incredible ledger of debt. But God, through Jesus Christ, wiped it all clean. So in our standing before God, in our relationship, we are forgiven for all sin, past, present, and future. Yet there is still, as we see in 1 John 1, 9, a cleansing, a clearing, if you will, of anything that may strain that relationship. It's not so much an issue of salvation, but a regular clearing and cleansing. Not a courtroom, but a family setting. Going before, again, that loving father and saying, Father, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Knowing, knowing that there is 100% certainty of that forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who has sinned or is indebted to us. There, is, there are few things that will rob your zeal quicker for the Lord and for prayer than bitterness in your life. There are few things that will rob you of that, that zeal, that passion for the Lord, that passion for prayer, than be, deeply held bitterness. It's almost like this sort of emotional strobe light in your head. You know, you just, it's just the thing that's just constantly flashing in your head, this bitterness of what someone has done to you. Maybe a very legitimate wrong that has been committed to you, towards you, but you have not come to the place where you can forgive them. And it just kind of strobes in your head. 
And it robs you of your zeal and your joy and you just feel paralyzed to serve the Lord. Ask God to give you power and that you, just as you have seen him forgive you for the sins in your life and forgive you in such a dramatic and powerful way that, as sending Jesus Christ, that we come unto the Lord and we say, God, give me the power to forgive. We forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And he says, and do not lead us into temptation. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, another little story is told of a young man, a young man that was really wanting a baseball bat, you know. And his parents said, you can have this baseball bat, a really special one. You can have this baseball bat, but you got to save up for it. And so the boy was saving very diligently his allowance. And one night, the mother came, walked beside his door after he'd gone to bed. And she heard him praying, and he said, God, help me to save up for this baseball bat. And he said, and God, help the ice cream truck to not come by our neighborhood tomorrow. You see, he was praying not only for the diligence in his life, but he was praying that God would help him remove temptation. And really when we see the kind of context originally of this language, it's not so much causative. God, don't cause me to be tempted. We know God doesn't commit us unto evil. He does allow us to face trial in life so that if we cling to him, we'll strengthen. But it's not so much causative here as much as it is permission. God, keep us, keep me from yielding to this evil. Keep me from yielding to temptation in our life. And he says this, deliver us from the evil one. Not only does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that he'll provide a way of escape when there is temptation, but he tells us that the great enemy of God the great enemy, Satan, who has lost the battle for your life, for your soul, but now he is trying to wage war in your life. He is battling on the front of making you ineffective for the gospel. We need protection. We need help. We need a wall built around us. And we see from Paul and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we can cry out to God and says, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So we have to remember when we come in prayer, we have to come with a correct perspective that we are coming with worship and gratitude unto God. We pray, God, help me to trust you with the basic necessities of life so I am free to serve you. I'm free to be an ambassador and I just find that joy and fulfillment of life of what you've called me to. And that God, I pray, bring before him whatever separates, whatever challenges that relationship, that sin in your life, that unforgiveness of another. Whatever it may be that separates you from God, bring those before him. And as we close, I want to close by reading the next few verses here. Use them in way of illustration as we close. And he said to them, verse 5, Which of you shall have a friend? And go to him at midnight and say, Friend, let me have three loaves. For a friend of mine has come on, to me on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So Jesus tells a parable here of, of someone who a friend shows up unexpectedly. They're not prepared to serve them, have a meal. So he goes to his neighbor and he says, please loan me some food. I don't have anything for my friend that's come and unexpectedly surprised me. And he will answer to him, don't trouble me for the door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give it to you. He's saying, it's late. Don't bother me. I say to you. Though he will rise, I, t I tell you, even so, he, will he not rise and give to his friend because he is, is, not because he is his friend, but yet because of his persistence, will he not give him whatever he needs? So Jesus is not saying that God is not our friend. 
He's not saying that God doesn't care for us, or he's not saying that God is some grumpy curmudgeon. We push the illustration, we push the parable too far when we say that. But the point of what Jesus is saying is that there must be persistence in prayer. Are we persistent about our prayer? Do we believe the words of God that the prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much? Do we believe him? Do we believe that God has called us to prayer and prayer actually affects something? Do we, do we believe that we're just kind of uh, children of just, just sort of determinism and fate? Or do we believe that we serve a God that says, you pray, you call out earnestly and vehemently in prayer, and your prayer accomplishes much? May we be believers. May we be Christians that live out that truth that our prayer accomplishes much and lord god as we come to you now in prayer we pray now that as there are those that sit even here within our midst that do not know christ as their savior we pray that this would be the day that they yield themselves unto you we pray that this would be the day that they would let go of whatever it is that holds them back from following you giving their life to you as a savior and their lord God, those that are here that know Christ as their Savior, yet they have come to a place of just sort of blankness in their life where they've left their first love of Jesus Christ. May they return to Him and that joy that we see, that calling out that, that you made unto the church at Ephesus. God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for being there with us. We thank you for the fact that you tell us that we can come to you in prayer and you will answer. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.